into every single situation that might arise in life or about every situation about life. But what our Bibles do do without, with 100% certainty is clarify the main things. Your Bible is not unclear on who Jesus is. Your Bible is clear that Jesus is God and man. That he is, a, he is just as much a deity as the Father himself. The Bible is clear that it bears its own authority given to it by God. To speak into our lives. Jesus acknowledged that every dot, every tittle was perfectly fulfilled by him. Meaning it would have been perfectly written prior to. The Bible is not unclear in how a man or a woman might be saved. The Bible is not unclear on sin and its results and its consequences in our lives. But then there are other areas in which good Christian brothers and sisters might disagree. There are other areas in which good Christian brothers and sisters might open their Bibles, read the same passage, and come to a, a different interpretation of that passage. Not in any way contradicting these, these big picture idols, but I'm talking about tertiary, secondary issues that don't in any way re, uh, redefine the gospel. Church government is one of these issues. Church government is one of these issues. That's why we have a Presbyterian denomination and a, and a Baptist denomination and a, an Episcopal, like, like all of these different forms. Now, we know there are different differences. There are the other differences, but that we can see how different churches are governed in different ways. And all of those churches have biblical data in which they can back up their form. And so there is no appendix in, appendix in the back of your Bibles right before you get to the maps that tells you this is what a church will look like. Here is a, a Appendix A, the bylaws of your church. Appendix B, the covenant of your church. Like, that doesn't exist in our Bibles, right? And so we are left with the task of organizing ourselves in the way that is most biblical. Organizing ourselves and operating and, and being united behind a method that is most biblical. That when we read the Bible, it is the way that we might understand it to be. Over the last two weeks, we've talked about the officials in the church, the official leaders in the church, namely that of elder and that of deacon. Elder being the functional authority in the church, the one that casts the vision in the church, the guards of the church, the ones that feed the flock in the church. Deacons being those that lead out in service and lead out in unifying. This week we're going to shift gears, and since we spent the last two weeks talking about the official leaders of the church, we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about the congregation and your role within the church and who it is that, or what it is that the congregation is responsible for and what authority it is, if any, that the, that the congregation bears. And that's the question that we're mostly going to focus on this morning. What, what authority, if any, does the congregation, do the general layman in the church bear in the governance of that church? Now I want to clarify terms for just a second here. Next week this will be much clearer, but when I talk about the congregation today, I want you to know exactly who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the congregation in the broad, general sense. Here's what I mean by that. Today, there are those of you, and we are so glad that you are here, there are those of you who are not members, you're not covenant members of Iron City Baptist Church. Perhaps you've never been baptized, We're glad. this is where we want you to be. Perhaps you've never even made a profession of faith in Jesus, but today you make up the congregation to whom I preach. Amen. We're glad that you're here. 
But when I talk about congregational authority, and in the sense that I'm talking about it today, I'm talking about it in the particular sense, in the, in the specific sense, in those that are baptized believers in Jesus, that have made a profession of faith in Christ, and have entered into covenant membership with us, okay? That's who I'm talking about. Now that's going to come much more clear next week, but that just helps us have some good parameters on how we're going to operate this morning. So with that in mind, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to talk about the authority of the congregation. 1 Peter chapter 2, stand with me as we read God's word together. <clears throat> we'll begin in verse 4, and we'll read through verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we go into, when we open up in 1 Peter 2 and we look at verse 4, he talks about how there's a house being built in the kingdom of God. That in verse 3, if we'd have read verse 3, we'd have seen that there was a living stone, referring to Christ himself. But as we move into verse 4, what does he say? He's saying that all of us that are in Christ, all of us that have been joined to Christ through the gospel, all of us that have repented of our sins and trusted, entrusted our lives to him, that we too have become living stones. And that God is building his house, God is building his kingdom out of these living stones that used to be sinners but are now the redeemed children of God. Now this is amazing. This is amazing. Because think about what he's saying here. In the Old Testament, God's presence was manifested and dwelt in either the tent of meeting or in the temple, right? So God had a physical, geographic house. Like he had a place, and that's where the holiness of God dwelt. That's where the presence of God dwelt. And if his people needed him, they came there. If they needed to seek him, they came there. If they needed to, to uh, offer sacrifices and seek forgiveness, they went there. They went to the geographical location of God. But not anymore. Not anymore. That now the temple of God is not in a geographical place like Jerusalem. Now the temple of God is the very heart of the sons and daughters that he has called to his name. 
The temple of God is every man, woman, or child that calls on his name and professes their faith in Jesus. That in them, the Spirit begins to dwell. And then what does God do? He takes all of these individual living stones, right? He takes all of these in whom the Spirit is dwelling and living and transforming and making holy and making righteous and making powerful and making courageous. He takes all of those in whom the Spirit is doing the sanctifying, transformative work and he brings them together and he binds them together in gospel mission. That there's a sense in which we know that we are filled with the Spirit. That we know that we are indwelt with the Spirit. But when we come together as the local church, when we come together as the living stones anchored in the chief cornerstone, Christ Jesus himself, then we know the Spirit in a way that we will never know him individually. That we are able to experience the Spirit in a way in which we will never experience him alone. That when we come together collectively with all of our spiritual gifts and all of our spirit indwelling and all of our spirit wrought passion and our spirit wrought freedom and we bring that together and we join that in covenant with one local body of believers as God's church, the spirit and presence of God is manifested uniquely powerful in that place. This is who we are, brothers and sisters. We're talking this morning about our identity in Jesus Like Before we get to government, before we get to bylaws, let's talk about our identity in Jesus. So moving out of this, flowing out of this, really gets to two key phrases that I really think anchors in so much of what I want to say today. Notice in verse 5 what he he calls us. Right in the middle of verse 5, what does he call us? A holy priesthood. You yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house into what? To a holy priesthood, right? Now now move with me to verse 9. Verse 9, you'll see a very similar phrase, slightly different. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, right? It's the same thing. That not only are we a living house when we come together, Not only are we living stones joined together to form a spiritual house and offering spiritual sacrifices, but we are the very priests that dwell in that house and that can offer up those sacrifices. Romans 12 talks about us offering up our lives as a living sacrifice, that this is the pleasing way of worship to God. That we are not only the temple of God, we are the priests of God. That just as Christ was the living stone that makes us living stones, Christ was at the very same time the great high priest that offered himself as sacrifice for every single one of us. And for all of us that will join in Christ, Christ forms us into a priesthood. Now if you were to go back, and many of you are reading the Old Testament right now, raise your hand right now if you're reading through the Old Testament. Uh, right? Amen. Praise. Isn't that amazing? How many people in our church that God is, is calling to do such a thing? As you read through the Old Testament, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find that there's a very small group of people in the Old Testament that are allowed to be priests. They had to come from the tribe of, anybody? Levi, that's right. They had to come from the tribe of Levi. And so, but then it was even a, a, a smaller group from within the tribe of Levi. But then, if you wanted to go into the Holy of Holies... If you wanted to approach the holiest throne, the place in which God's holiness was most manifested, God's holiness was most made clear, only one man got to do that. 
He was not only from the tribe of Levi, he was not only selected from within the tribe of Levi as a priest, but he was the great high priest selected from among the priests. And only he could go into the Holy of Holies. You see, what we find is, is in the Old Testament, priests form a bridge or function as bridges. That what we have is, is we have the, the, the priest being the bridge between God and his people and his people and God. That the, the priest goes to the people of God and he speaks to them on behalf of God himself. That the priest then goes to God and he speaks on behalf of the people of God to God himself. That the priest functions very literally as a bridge in the old covenant. But in the new covenant, in Christ, in the gospel, all of that is utterly obliterated. All of that is completely done away with. No longer do we go through priests. Why? We are priests. We have access to Christ. We have access to the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 4 says that we should approach the throne of grace with boldness. Romans 5, uh, Revelation 5 says that one day we will rule over all of this as the priests, as a kingdom of priests with Christ himself. All of that's been done away with. We don't need a bridge anymore. Why? Christ is our bridge. He is the once and for all bridge. The living sacrifice himself. The one that offered himself as the great high priest. As the spotless lamb on the, on the priest's altar. And now, we are a holy priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. We have, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, complete access to the Father through the Son. But not only do we get the access of a priest, we get the privileges of a prince. You see that? You see that? Royal priesthood. You're not just a priest. That's good. That's awesome. That's amazing. We can just stay in the fact that we've been in, uh, we have been engrafted into this priesthood. We can just stay there the rest of the day and just revel in the glory of God. But that's not enough in the gospel. That's not enough in the gospel. Not only are you a priest, you're a prince. You are giving standing in the house of God just as much as his own son is. And let us remember, he is the king of glory. He is the king of kings. All of those in his house are brought into a position of royalty. Now, in the Old Testament, guess what? Not one king ever went into the Holy of Holies. Not David. He didn't. Not Solomon. He didn't. Not the greatest kings in the history of Israel. One did, Uriah, and he is rebuked for it. And no priest had the authority or the rights or the privileges of royalty. But what do we have? Both. Both. We have access to God, able to approach him at any time, able to approach him in any state, able to approach him with any problem, able to approach him in need of any wisdom, able to approach him for the grossest of forgiveness that is needed. And at the very same time, we are given the position of royalty, the privileges of royalty, the authority of royalty. So much so that one day in the eschaton, when Christ has returned, we will rule over the earth with him. Some of you come every week and you are not a believer. You are not a Christian. And you wonder, what does Jesus have to offer you? 
you've seen all kinds of stuff in our community. You've seen all kinds of stuff out of church people. You've seen all kind of mess-ups and blow-ups. You know about the hypocrisy. You know about the struggles. You know how many people say that they're a Christian on Sunday and live as a pagan on Monday. You've seen it, and yet you're here this morning, and you're asking the same question that you ask every single week. What does Jesus really have to offer you? Here's what Jesus has to offer you. Jesus is able to transform you from a peasant into a prince, from a pagan into a priest. That what Jesus has to offer you is himself. Jesus gives you access to himself, the ultimate source of wisdom, the ultimate source of glory, the ultimate source of joy, the ultimate source of peace. He gives you access as a priest and a prince to himself that you might enjoy him and know him and walk with him and be with him forever. Forever. That's what Jesus offers you in the gospel. We're not talking about you having sex inside of marriage. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the gospel. That comes. We're not, we're not talking about people that stop cussing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus offers you a complete transformation in your standing with God. Jesus gives you access to God himself. Friend, it comes every single week. I'm asking you to come to him. Come to him. Come to him and be saved. Come to him and be transformed from a peasant into a prince. Come to him and be transformed from a pagan into a priest. Come to him and have access to the only infinite source of goodness and glory that there is in the earth. Because what God offers you is a gift that is too glorious and too rich and too expensive to ever be purchased in this earth. And it is his own infinite glory. Come to him today. Now maybe you're wondering, what in the world does all of this have to do with church government? What does our, our standing in the house of God, what does our being built together as a spiritual house, what does our being a royal priesthood have to do with our standing or with our function as a church, with our governing as a church? Everything. Everything. Because here's what this means. It's not just priests that get to pray to God. It's not just elders that get to be filled with the Spirit. It's not just elders that are given the illumination of the Spirit to read and know and love and understand the Bible. It's not just elders that are given the, the privileges of prayer, the privileges of, of pleading with God, the privileges of seeking God. It's not just elders in whom God works. And because it is not just God, elders in whom God works, it is not just in elders in whom the authority of the church rests. No, God has made it so that every single one of his sons and every single one of his daughters have equal standing in his house. All of you have access to the Spirit. All of you have been indwelt with the very presence of God. All of you have the very authority given to you by your royal nature. All of you have access to the infinite source of wisdom that is our Father. All of you have that. Now, some of us have different abilities. Some of us have different spiritual giftings. 
Some of us have different callings on our lives. That's why we have elders. That's why God sets them aside for the leadership of the church and for the function of the church and for the moving forward of the church. But every single one of us, from the oldest saint to the youngest believer, every single one of us have access to the throne of God and are equal in his sight. And so it is based upon this theology of the priesthood of believers that the ultimate authority in the church rests on the congregation herself. That it rests on those that have been given such a standing in the house of God. Those who will one day co-rule with Christ are to co-rule in the church. Right? Now functionally, in our, if, you look, if you were to look at our, our Bibles, if you were to look at our document, as, as imperfect as it is, I'm sure, you would see this, this uh, us attempting to model the gospel in this way uh, in two ways specifically that I can just mention quickly here. Number one, you'll read on the very first page it says authority. And who does the authority rest in? It takes, rests in the hands of the congregation. The ultimate authority rests with the congregation. God-given authority rests with the congregation. The authority to, to hire elders, to elect them, to fire them. The, the uh, authority to, to vote on the, the purchase of land or the overall uh, moving forward of the church. All of that ultimately rests, the accountability rests in the authority of the congregation. And in the second way that we've tried to model the gospel in this way in our bylaws is that you, you'll remember when we talked about elders, there's two types of elders, right? They're all equal in authority. They're all equal in standing. They're all equal in stature. But you have paid elders, which would be what I am, who are hired by the church, who get their livelihood from the church, who make their primary occupation in life has been set aside to deliver the word of God to the people of God and to shepherd the people of God and to help the people of God and to counsel the people of God, right? But then you have this other category, which are the lay elders. These are those from within the congregation that God calls out. These are those from within the congregation herself that God raises up and puts on equal footing with those that are paid elders in the church. And if you'll look in our bylaws, the way that it's called to be is if there are enough called men, and we cannot do it if there are not, but if there are enough God-called men, God-equipped men, God-burdened men, our goal is to have the number of paid elders plus one in the lay elders. So that in other words, there's always one more lay elder than there is paid elders, signifying and symbolizing that the ultimate authority rests within the congregation herself by using and representing in the lay elders that have been called from among the congregation. Now, it's kind of unique that I'm a paid elder from within this congregation, right? That's kind of a, a unique thing, but bylaws, we couldn't really cover all those kind of little contingencies, right? So, you'll, but you'll see that, right? You'll see, understand how all of that fits together and how all of that works together. Now, what I want you to see, understanding that kind of the, the big picture and letting that be our anchor point, is to see now how the New Testament recognizes this authority and how the New Testament, how, how functionally this typically happened in the life of the church. So we're going to do a bit of a jumping, uh, a bit of jumping around. So now if you turn back with me to Matthew chapter 18, we're going to look at three passages really quickly. And see instances in which we see this authority, this congregational authority made clear. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read verses 15 through 17. We're actually going to preach through this whole, this whole text here in about two weeks when we get to the issue of church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault 
between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, this is the point I want you to see. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Who is the final authority that Jesus recognizes an issue of church discipline? It's the congregation, right? He does not appeal to a synod. He does not appeal to a presbytery. He does not appeal to a pastor. He does not appeal to a bishop. He appeals to the congregation herself. That you first go to the brother yourself. If he's still unrepentant and his heart is still hardened, take two or three witnesses and go to the brother and, and, and plead with him and ask him to repent and to come back to the faith. If he still will not, bring him before the congregation and let the congregation plead with him to repent and plead with him to be made right. And if he still will not, cast him out. You see, this is the greatest functional authority the New Testament can give to the congregation. He gives to the congregation the authority to either bring into fellowship or to disfellowship a member. He gives the congregation the authority to excommunicate someone from the body that is living in such abhorrent sin that it is made clear. Paul lives this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a man there living in horrific sexual sin. He's just a sexual deviant. And so he, they, Paul says to gather the assembly... And to cast him out of the fellowship. Then we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, apparently it goes well. Because he says, according to the, what the majority ruled, it went well, essentially. So what we see is Paul recognizing the congregation's authority in, me, uh, in response to church discipline. Now look, this is not a fun subject. Let's just own that. It's not fun to talk about church discipline. It's not fun to talk about casting someone out of the fellowship. It is, I, I pray that that would not have to happen here. But it's not a gray area. It's not a gray area. It's explicit. Coming right from the lips of Jesus. It's made clear, this is what we are to do. This is who we, this is who we must be and what we must do. And who is it that the purity of the church, whose responsibility is the purity of the church primarily and ultimately? The congregation herself that you must take seriously the the purity of your church you must take seriously sexual deviancy in your church you must take seriously abhorrent sin in your church that tarnishes the reputation of the gospel in our community you must take seriously your own purity if we are going to be a church that looks anything like Jesus you must look like Jesus I must look like Jesus. We, together, collectively, as the congregation of Iron City, must look like Christ. And so we are to take seriously the purity of our church. Turn with me now to Galatians chapter 1. It'll be to your right. Because it doesn't end with church discipline. First, I want you just to read verse 1. Just a quick, quick word on verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. 
and all the brothers who were with me to the churches of Galatia. If you look at the epistles, the general epistles are the ones that I'm talking about. If you look to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you look to Romans, you look to uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you look at those, who are they addressed to? They are not addressed to a preacher. They are not addressed to a pastor. They are not addressed to a bishop. They are addressed to the church at large. They are addressed to the general congregation, meaning that all of the stuff found there within is addressed to the congregation and is the responsibility of the congregation and is the charge of the congregation and under the purview of the congregation. Now look with me at Galatians 8, uh, 1, 8, and 9. We'll see a specific issue that I think is particularly important. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. <clears throat> See, in Galatia, there was a horrific heresy taking, taking root in the church. There was a heresy that was beginning to, to take over the church and to, take, and, and to seep into the hearts of the believers so much so that they were unsure of who their true apostles were, if what Paul was saying was right, or if the false teachers and what they were saying was right. And so what does Paul say? He says, it is your responsibility what is taught in your church. It is your responsibility what gospel you affirm in your pulpit. It is your responsibility who you allow yourself to listen to and be subject to. And it is your responsibility what gospel you apply to your life and hear and treasure and love. It is your responsibility. Church, did you know that if you allow yourself to sit under the teaching of a false teacher, you are inviting the judgment of God upon yourself and your family? you know that? If you allow your church to be under the preaching of a false teacher or preacher, you are inviting the judgment of God on your church and on your community. You are responsible for the gospel that you hear. You are responsible for the word that is preached to make sure that it tests well, as we talked about earlier. To make sure that it does come from here. To make sure that it is the one true and only gospel. It means if the elders here got off base and we were to invite a false preacher into this pulpit, you should protest, you should fire every single one of us in that day. And you should get the church back on track. Because you are inviting such judgment on your own life and family. Let me just call an aside here. Two preachers that I'm afraid has influence in here. Number one being Joel Osteen. You've heard us talk about him before. I have no particular axe to grind with him as a man. I don't know him. I've never met him. But I can tell you, brothers and sisters, he is a wolf. He is a wolf. Test what you hear from him. He tells us that your best life can be lived now. And the only way that is possible is if you are going to hell later. Because glory with God at his table will be better than this. Test it. Test it. The other being Jesse Duplantis. Jesse Duplantis preaches in this community every single year. And he is a renowned heretic. He is a renowned prosperity preacher that just this month 
said that the only way that he can get close to God is if he has his own private $60 million jet that allows him to fly above all of us commoners so that he can reach his hands to heaven and know the Lord. You know what Jesse Duplantis wants? He wants your money. He wants your check. He wants your influence. He wants your power. He wants your prominence. Do not invite him into your church. Do not invite him into your living room. Do not invite him into your family. Do not invite that judgment upon yourself. Because what Paul is talking about in Galatia is the opposite of what's happening when he talks in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You remember? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, what does he say? He says that in the last days, that the church, people in the church, are going to gather for themselves teachers that tell them what their itching ears want to hear. That they're going to gather for themselves preachers and teachers that make them feel good. They're going to gather for themselves preachers and teachers that don't say hard things and don't say difficult things and that avoid difficult truths in the Bible. Brothers and sisters, let it not be said of Iron City that we have itching ears gathering for ourselves teachers that say what we want to hear. Let it instead be said of Iron City that we have burning hearts that want the gospel, all of it, the hard parts, the good parts, the glorious parts, the difficult parts, that it might transform us more and more and more into the image of Christ. Let it not be that we have itching, heart, itching ears but burning hearts for the gospel at Iron City. Finally, turn with me. To 1 Timothy chapter 5. We could, we could talk about numerous other instances and examples in the Bible. We just don't, time will not allow. First Timothy chapter 5. <clears throat> forgive my voice. We'll begin in verse 17. Let the elders who rule double well... Be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. So he gives us a twofold responsibility for the congregation here, right? There's a twofold responsibility. Number one, if you have a pastor, you have elders, no, it's plural there. Remember, we talked about that, it's plural. You have elders that are leading well. You have elders that are, are laboring in the word and preaching the word, then you should honor them. They are worthy of your honor. They are worthy of, of double honor. That they are worthy of what, however it is that you can show affection and love and, and a commitment to them. But then he gives the other side of it, right? He says, but if there is unfaithfulness in the life of an elder, if there is sin in the life of an elder, we're not talking about I disagree philosophically here, or I, he does it this way, but I would do it this way. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about sin. He, there is sin in the life of the elder. There is false teaching in the ministry of the elder. Then what you should do is you should have two or three witnesses that agree with you. And you should go and you should rebuke this elder. And you should hold him accountable for his false teaching. You should hold him accountable for his sin. You should hold him accountable for the public way that he is bringing shame and reproach upon this local body and upon the gospel at large. 
In other words, it is the responsibility of the congregation to hold her elders accountable for the direction of the church and for the teaching of the church. That you are ultimately responsible for what happens at Iron City Baptist Church. Ultimately, what happens when we all stand before the Lord, yes, the elders will give a greater account for what took a place in the church, but do not think that you yourself will be passed aside and give no account for what happened in the church. No, the congregation bears the authority to guard what is happening, to hold accountable her leaders, to move forward into the gospel frontier. Now, what's the danger in all of this, right? What's the danger in all of this? Because what I want us to understand is that with this understanding, that there is, this is both gloriously beautiful and fatally dangerous. When we understand our role as the congregation, when we understand who we are as the people of God and how we are to function as the people of God, it is beautiful because God has taken all of these living stones from all of these different areas of life and all of the baggage that you knew you had, gone. All the scars you've got, they're there and they're represented in this patchwork quilt, this beautiful mosaic that makes out his church. And we're allowed to rule together. Even those of us who were in the New Testament would have been slaves were ruling right beside the masters, right? Those who have high standing in society, those who have low standing in society are together on equal footing before God Almighty ruling and leading the church collectively, leading the church together. Beautiful. But what's the danger? What if the congregation does not know their Bibles well? What if the congregation is not growing in godliness. What if the congregation can't articulate the basic tenets of the faith? What if the congregation is leading no one to Jesus and has no heart for gospel mission? Guess where she will lead the church? Guess what will happen in that church? It will permeate the people. It will permeate the vision. It will permeate the service. We cannot hold our elders accountable to the word if we do not know the word. We cannot test the truth of the message if we do not know the truth itself. We cannot call out somebody else's hypocrisy if we are living in abhorrent hypocrisy ourselves. We cannot guard the purity of the church if we ourselves are impure. You see, the danger in this is that we can become a church like Corinth. There's New Testament examples of what happens when that takes place. We can become Corinth. We can become a church with horrific divisions and sexual deviancy. We can become a church with no order and no organization and no willingness to be led, no willingness to submit. We can become a church that is completely indistinguishable from the, from the civilization and the culture that surrounds us. We, because of the authority entrusted to the congregation, can become that church. And so we must remember that in 1 Peter we are not only called a royal priesthood, we are called a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. That we have been set aside washed by the blood of Jesus, given the righteousness of Christ himself, that we might no longer live in sin, but live in the, in the Spirit. 
filled with the Spirit, pressing on in the Spirit, that we might press on in the gospel mission, reaching the nations, pushing back the lostness of our community, that we might press deeper into the glory of God's word and milk it for every, every dime of truth that is there, that it might be treasured and applied and loved and known. Again, church, I ask us, if we want our church to look like Jesus, do we look like Jesus? It does not matter how godly your pastor is. It does not matter how godly your elders are. If there is no godliness in your own life and in your own family, we are not a Christ-like church. You bear responsibility. With great authority comes great responsibility. You see, this is not about business meetings. This is not about us coming up here and fighting over carpet colors. All of us have seen that, right? All of us know about that, right? We know those, chur those churches. When, when Peter is holding up the holy priesthood, the royal priesthood, he's not holding it up and saying, well, now y'all can all go and vote on carpet colors and go into battle over worship style, right? That's not what he's talking about. <clears throat> no, this is not about business meetings. This is about collectively us as the people of God, getting on our faces together to seek his face, to know his will, to want his will and his kingdom to be built in our church. This is not about business meetings, it's about prayer meetings. Where we get in one mind, in one accord, in one spirit with consensus, pressing on for gospel mission. This morning, Iron City, I ask us to look at the word. To recognize who we are in Christ and to seek his face for our church. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father.